0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Welcome to The Hindu's InFocus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. It sounds like a science fiction movie, but it's all real. Scientists managed to revive a pair of roundworms that had been buried deep in the Siberian permafrost 46,000 years ago. The roundworms, called nematodes, were thawed in a lab and came alive again, reproduced several generations, and then died. These nematodes first existed when the woolly mammoths roamed our Earth. They managed to survive in the harshest of frozen conditions, and then, from a state of suspended animation that scientists call cryptobiosis, they began life again, crawling about in a lab. A paper on this was published recently in the scientific journal PLOS Genetics. Does this mean that technically, life can be paused for thousands of years and then restarted? That organisms can exist in a state between life and death indefinitely? If these roundworms came alive again, can other microorganisms and pathogens do that too, especially since the Siberian permafrost is melting, and can these microbes then cause new diseases? We discuss these fascinating questions with Philip Schiffer, group leader at the Institute of Physiology at the University of Cologne in Germany, one of the senior authors of the study. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Dr. Philip Schiffer. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here.
1: My pleasure.
0: Dr. Schiffer, tell us, how was the roundworm, barely a millimeter long, discovered in the Siberian permafrost?
1: This was discovered as a um, kind of a normal scientific, or normal, but a scientific uh, process, research. Um, the colleagues in Russia, they were just looking at the permafrost soils in general and wanted to know what's in there and what they can find and also do some basic research on the permafrost itself. So they um, went there to Siberia and took samples. That means basically they um, they went there and, and took little portions of the soil and sealed it off in containers so that uh, it was still frozen. so It was also kept cold um, and that nothing from the outside could come in. And then they transported these samples, more than 300 at the time, back to the laboratory and then with some time passing, started to look into these different samples. And at one point out of one of these toying permafrost samples, so a little bit of soil toying. They saw that these nematodes started to crawl out, just two of them, Uh, and of course they were very surprised about this. Yeah, this is the basic process of the discovery.
0: (laughs) Right. Tell us a little bit more about nematodes or roundworms. What do we know about them?
1: Um, we know a lot, but not enough. <laughs> yeah. So nematodes or roundworms, uh, as you already said, are, are very tiny little creatures, most of them. Some of them can be very large. I will come back to this in a second. Um, they are one of the most abundant animal groups on Earth. There's this famous saying by, um, or famous for scientists, by Nathan Cobb, who was a nematologist who says that if you erase all the contours from Earth, if you take away the trees, the mountains, the rivers, you could still distinguish the contours of earth because everything would be covered in nematodes. And that is because these tiny little worms, they are living in all ecosystems and all habitats on earth. Basically, when you are listening to this, you could go to to your pot plant or to your garden or just outside, dig up some soil and you will find some soil nematodes. Equally well, if you have some fruits in a fruit basket, I'm sure there are some nematodes inside. Um, And they are all very little. In in German, we call them Fadenwurmer, which means something like thread worms. And that's basically because they just look like a tiny piece of thread. Um, And from the outside, you couldn't really distinguish them. So you need a microscope to do this or, as we did now, genetics or genomics. What you might also know nematodes from is that some of them are really nasty parasites. They are plant parasites, which are very devastating to crops. But they are also um, animal parasites. Very often people um, have to take their dogs or cats to the vet to give them some pills because they're infected with worms. But in um, in um, tropical regions, subtropical regions of the world, there's also many humans infected with nematodes. And just one uh, quote-unquote fun fact to add, because I said most of them are, are rather small. These parasites can become larger. And there's this uh, famous case of a, of a ve- veiled parasite nematode or veiled parasitic nematodes, with, which grows um, to meters in length. Um, so they can be very, very long, but, um, but that is very rare. Mostly they're quite small.
0: This particular pair of roundworms, uh, Dr. Schiffer, were able to survive for 46,000 years by going into a state of cryptobiosis, correct?
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: So this sort of paused their life. Can you explain to us what we know about cryptobiosis?
1: Okay, so this uh, process has been known for, for quite a while. And it's not only these nematodes or roundworms that can go into this state. It's also uh, rotifers and tardigrades, so little animals, even some insects. What we know about this um, basically as a, as a process is that these animals, they stop their metabolism. So They go into this state, which is somehow between life and death. So they are not dead. They are also not really alive anymore because they are not feeding, they are not reproducing. That's why we also call it suspended animation. And the process, as I said, had been described in in different animal groups. For example, also in nematodes that uh, were found in Antarctica, where they can also freeze and where obviously makes a lot of sense for them. But also in... um, Nematodes that uh, we can find, for example, in deserts, where it's very, very dry. And where they, instead of freezing, lose all their body water. And then when water comes back into the system, similar to the toy that we saw in these permafrost bombs they, they return to life. And then of course, because this is something very interesting in biology, people also did some research on it and found that um, this sugar, which we later, now in our paper describe in more detail trihalos might be involved in the process um, and of course people also did experiments and see how long this cryptobiosis can last in time and uh, the record of what people saw is like maybe 20 25 years um, that is possible and of course that's also because if you do an experiment in the laboratory um you, you don't do it for 400 or 200 or a thousand years, basically from from our research, what we what we now found as a as a key finding is that um, this suspended animation can last for millennia, which is really really surprising, of course, because if you, if you think about uh, like a tiny little worm, though it's very tiny and maybe nothing much can happen from it from the outside, but it's still laying there frozen in a, in a piece of soil or kind of maybe also laying that completely dried out. Um, and then, of course, there are other organisms around it that, that might start eating it. There's also the background radiation in the soil, such so just radioactivity, very little levels that, that are always there in the environment, which might destroy cells or the DNA. Uh, and so it's a really big surprise that these worms can last for, for such a long time. And then um, for the process itself, What's, of course, um, really interesting is that um, these worms can come back fully to life and start feeding and reproducing as soon as they quote-unquote wake up. If you want to take a comparison to, for example, a bear which goes into hibernation in in winter or any other vertebrate that does this, they, um, they keep their metabolism going. So you might have heard that they just you know, reduce the level of energy consumption. They are going basically to a deep sleep. But that also means that all the repair mechanisms in their body, which keep their uh, DNA uh, intact or or, or keep it uh, not from from breaking, keep their cells uh, working and all this, this is still ongoing. But during cryptobiosis, that's not the case because no metabolism is happening. And that's then... um, the the really crazy thing because uh yeah when they freeze there are even ice crystals forming in these little worms and they should destroy the cells the dna the proteins and if that happens then the animal would die and what we describe now is that um in these permafrost worms um, as in other nematodes this sugar which previously had already been sought to act in this case trihalose plays a really important role in this um, and the most intriguing finding that we are one of the very intriguing findings that we also have that this sugar is also involved in uh, in another nematode, *Caenorhabditis elegans*, which is a model organism where many many people work on. And this um, model orga- this model organism has larval forms, and these larval forms they can go into a state that we call Dauer state. So it's not um, it's not like lying um, somewhere outside in the uh, in in the permafrost or somewhere, um, but um, they can form this, this resting Dauer stages. And these resting Dower stages they also use the triallose. And so now we know that this permafrost worm and the model organism both use triallose to survive this state of where there is hardly any or no metabolism. And no metabolism in the permafrost worm. Um, and that allows us to make comparison. Because if we have a model organism like C. elegans, we can do a lot of experiments that we cannot do in a worm that we just found out there in the wild. And so then we can dig into the genetics. That means um, we have this biochemistry evidence of triallos accumulating, but we still don't know how the genes in the organism are organizing this, how they uh, switch on the production of triallos, um, how they switch on the coming back to, to life. And by comparing the genomes of the species, which we did, we can then identify genes that we already know from the model organism, see if these genes are active in the non model organism our permafrost borne, and through this then start understanding more about the process and the genetics of cryptobiosis itself. And that's kind of what we um, enabled with our study by describing the genomes, by looking which genes are there. already comparing them and now we can do further experiments to really see what on the molecular level is happening when there's cryptobiosis
0: dr schiffer you said that there was no metabolic activity at all for all of the time that the siberian roundworms were frozen so in what in what way can we describe them as alive at that point in time are we only saying that they were alive then because they managed to come back to life
1: Oh, this is a, this is such a deeply philosophical question. And I'm <laughs> discussing this with colleagues as well, and and I, I think I think we could have a debate about what is life for ours. Uh, I, let's think about uh, viruses, for example, right? Um, there's also we said: Are they alive or are they dead? Because they don't have their own metabolism, right? Um, yeah, so so basically what you're asking me is to define what is life. And I, I think I, I have to bail out on it this and say <laughs> I
0: that.
1: So I, I would say these worms are not dead. Yeah, because if something I, I want to define something as dead when when it, it can't come back to, you know, walk the earth in the same form. Of course we can have in in various religions have belief about coming back to life in, in some other forms. and I don't want to Go into this. This is, uh, of course, something people can believe in, and I, I wouldn't uh, want to talk about that. Just talking about the biology. So something uh, when it's dead, the body starts decaying, uh, and that body cannot come and um, walk the earth again unless you believe in zombies or something. And and these worms definitely are not zombies. So they're um, they're um, restarting their um, metabolism, restarting uh, reproducing. And uh, basically, the moment they crawl out of of this state of suspended animation, their life goes on as as if it had never stopped. So I say they are somewhere in between life and
0: death. <laughs> you said uh, you talked to us a little bit about trehalose, the sugar that was involved, and that is very important in the process of cryptobiosis. Is this sugar only found in in, in these nematodes or or have there been discoveries made where it is present elsewhere?
1: No, it's present um, all over life, like in normal metabolism. And we know that um, tardigrades, rotifers, even these insects that can go into the cryptobiotic state are using this sugar in some way. We call this um, convergent evolution which means that in um, groups of, in this case, animals that are very far away from each other on the tree of life, they found a very similar solution for the same process. So they can all go into cryptobiosis and somehow they converged on this uh, concept of using the sugar triolos to protect the DNA and cells and proteins.
0: Moving on a little bit, Doctor Schiffer. One of the fears is we all know that the Siberian permafrost is melting to some degree. One of yeah. the fears is that it will release microbes and pathogens into the atmosphere that can cause diseases and epidemics that are still unknown. It sounds like a little bit like science fiction, but how serious are these dangers?
1: So I, I think there is uh, some, or there are some grounds to. Um, to take this serious and that this can happen, of course, uh, we don't know what kinds of, for example, bacteria are, are, are frozen in there or stored in there. Same for maybe viruses. I mean, we saw with COVID that a random chance event of a virus changing from one system to humans can can cause a, a an epidemic or pandemic, and. One could imagine that by thawing these old soils and uh, many places where there's permafrost, um, something might be released that's causing uh, harm to humans. I am, however, not like uh, super concerned in my daily life about this, to put it this way, because if we think about these epidemics or pandemics, they they, they happen very rarely. We, uh, we all heard about this in the case of COVID, where we had the Spanish flu in uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And then uh, 120 years later, basically, we had, uh, had this, this, this COVID, so it's a very long time. And I don't expect that through the toying of permafrost, we will have a new uh, pandemic every five years or something now, because it's just, just so rare, this event. Um, this is my personal opinion. I'm not an epidemiologist, of course, And what I would say, though, is that um, we should all be very concerned about the permafrost toying itself, because it's releasing a lot of of carbon carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that was stored there for millennia. And as we know, there's this feedback loop um, that leads to more global warming when we have more carbon dioxide coming out into the air. And I guess that's the real fear that I have, in regard to the toying of permafrost and not so much that um, that some bacteria or viruses suddenly appear that uh, then start killing humans.
0: Does the permafrost have a history of throwing up other startling scientific discoveries?
1: So I, I wouldn't know <laughs> from the field of biology. I mean, of course, uh, people have been uh, finding um, preserved woolly mammoths in there, so which is kind of a window into history. Maybe there are geological or geochemical findings coming out of the, the permafrost. That's not my field, so I, I wouldn't um, want to comment on this. You
0: have said earlier, Dr. Schiffer, that the findings from the roundworm study can help us to learn more about the adaptation of organisms to extreme conditions. Could you elaborate on this?
1: Yes. Um, I already went a bit into this when I said that um, these, the, the, the fact of... Or the. Um, The process of cryptobiosis is um, not only um, this this freezing, um, but there's this related um, process of anhydrobiosis, which is basically the same process where these organisms adapt uh, adapt to, to dryness so they can completely lose all their body water and then in the same way as when they are toying, come back to life when there's water again. And in this case, we have two extreme environmental conditions. We have freezing, which is something that happens in winter, in many places of the world. And we have uh, desiccation, which is drying, which also happens in some places of the world, for example, deserts. And these nematodes, tardigrades, rotifers have uh, found an, an evolutionary way to cope with these extreme conditions. So when winter is coming, they, they freeze when it's spring. They thaw when there is no water. They completely desiccate. When there is water again, they come back to life. And then, if you look outside, I mean, just the temperature readings for many places of the world uh, were crazy in the last um, in the last months. So we, I think, we don't need to debate anymore if there is climate change or not. So there is climate change. I mean, think of the. Uh, fires in Hawaii only that, that just tragically killed so many peoples, people in the in the last few days. And of course, there's also weather involved and everything, but it's, I guess, undeniable that this is an extreme event, which is also linked to climate change. So we see that the whole earth or many parts, uh, parts of the earth and many environments are becoming more extreme. And it's my belief that we, if we study organisms that have already adapted through millions of years of evolution to survive in such extreme environments or in extreme conditions, if we study their genomes, their genetics, um, how they uh, survived this, how they adapted to this, then we can take this knowledge and transfer it to protect other organisms or other ecosystems. So it's not that we take a gene from these permafrost worms and put it, I don't know, in in a squirrel, and then the squirrel can suddenly, uh, instead of hibernate, go into cryptobiosis and survive if it's getting cold or can lose all its body water when it's getting too hot and dry. But um, we look at the genomes of these animals and we understand which changes happen there in comparison to related species. Then we can look into the genomes of species who are not as well adapted into extreme conditions um and look at the whole population and can understand maybe okay this group there might be a chance to for them to survive or we need to implement these and these measures maybe Um, that's the what conservation geneticists do and in that way um, protect species or ecosystems from based on the knowledge that we gain from studying such organisms that have adapted to extreme conditions
0: as you said Dr. Schiffer, climate change is now a reality, and the Earth's temperature is going up. So would you say that when you talk about the fact that this studying these creatures could help us with the conservation of species today, would size matter? I mean, these roundworms are so tiny and they manage to survive. but would it be at all possible with larger organisms?
1: so I, I don't think that we, that we can put large organisms into cryptobiosis, but, let 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 it put me this way. So so there is a lot of research conservation genetics already on large organisms because if um, yeah if if you and I talk about animals we usually think you know of cows, uh, hares, squirrels, elephants, tigers, whatever, yeah, um, because that's animals for us. But um, if and that's vertebrates, so animals with a spine, also fish, frogs. But there are only a couple of thousands of them in, 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 in principle, like I don't know, 50, 40,000 maybe in, in this group of, of vertebrates. There's a one million nematode species. There's also hundred thousands of of different insect species, ticks, spiders, rotifers, tardigrades, all these things that we don't see. But these, because they are so many, they are key to the health of ecosystems. So if We go back to the very beginning where I said, you know, dig up a piece of soil somewhere and look into it to find nematodes. You will also find a lot of other organisms in there. And without these organisms, um, the whole ecosystem, your your plant, which is also an organism, which is important, it it couldn't live. It it would be dead. So it's not that we need to transfer knowledge from these tiny worms, maybe to uh, the conservation of tigers. But by looking at them, we can learn... A lot about the conservation of other tiny organisms maybe and that will help us to protect the whole ecosystem because the tiger can't live if not the nematode is eaten maybe by an insect the insect is eaten um by some by a mouse and then the mouse is eaten by a bit larger animal and the tiger can eat the the larger animal
0: that's amazing thank you so much for speaking to us today dr schiffer
1: it was my pleasure